May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight. Amen. Last Sunday, I invited us to consider the experience of the burning bush and the call of Moses from God's point of view. That perhaps God's priorities are not ours where we value efficiency and accuracy and speed. God values justice, grace, love, and the slow burn of being in companionship and partnership and relationship. God values people, messy, beautiful, imperfect people. Well, speaking of people, this week, I want to think about Moses. Now, there are other preachers, preachers who have graced this pulpit who are much more gifted than I when it comes to doing a caricature-based sermon. For example, Reverend Yon has written one from the perspective of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, which I think you preached here on Christmas morning. For sure, Advent. Uh, anyway, it's great. It's pretty neat to hear a sermon shared in character from the perspective of a man or woman who is actually in the story. It's such a neat thought experiment to crawl inside. Well, I'm not going to go quite that far today. I won't be speaking as Moses, but I am going to step away from my usual style of preaching and spend a bit of time talking about a person, Moses, the man not just a legend. Recorded across Exodus and Deuteronomy and then sprinkled throughout the rest of Scripture, even the New Testament, we find pieces of Moses' life story. Few people in the Bible get anywhere near as much airtime as Moses does, and for good reason. He is the main character in a pretty significant part of the Israelite people's story and of God's overarching theme of deliverance. And liberation. Later on, the author of Matthew's Gospel will strive to paint Jesus himself as a new Moses, taking pains to make parallels between their lives and ministries. God's call to Moses triggered the start of one of the greatest religious stories ever told. A bush burning but not consumed. A commission to demand the liberation of a people enslaved to Egypt. Ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the freedom of God's people from four centuries of slavery, the giving of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, the establishment of the tabernacle. The list goes on and on and on. But behind all of this adventure was a man, like a real person, an imperfect, beautiful person, with a stutter, who sought to do the best he could under very stressful and scary circumstances. Moses actually did have quite the life story to tell. So I'd like to spend some time with him this morning. The third child in his family, Moses was born during the reign of a genocidal Egyptian pharaoh who incited population control 
against the Hebrews by commanding that all their male babies were to be thrown into the Nile and drowned. In an act of pure love and hope, Yoheved placed her newborn son inside a little wicker basket and sent him off into the river under the watchful gaze of his older sister Miriam. The basket made its way down the Nile and miraculously floated straight into the arms of one of Pharaoh's daughters who had been bathing in the river at that time. She plucked the newborn out of the water, and despite the marks of his circumcision, which identified him as a Hebrew, perhaps, she decided to adopt him. So while his kith and kin were suffering under an increasingly oppressive Egyptian regime, young Moses got to grow up in the privilege and leisure of palace life, far away from the backbreaking and soul-destroying existence of his people. I'd love to know if his adoptive family kept his background from him as he was growing up. Or was he raised very aware that he was different from the royal family? I know that some of you were adopted or have people in your life who were adopt adopted into your family. Some of you are on the other side of adoption, like Yoheved, always wondering how the child that was born into your life is faring under someone else's care. I have often wondered what narrative the royals gave to young Moses. Was he a special boy gifted to them by the gods? Was he treated like a guest, but ultimately a second-class citizen among them? It's all speculation, but I think it's important to keep in mind that Moses' formative years were spent in luxury while his relatives were enslaved to his adoptive family. Messy. Moses got to live while so many baby boys born at the same time that he was had been murdered by the state. The collective grief of the Hebrew people hung like a pall around them. The Hebrew kid living the high life in the palace was a constant reminder of what they had lost. Don't lose sight of that. So while we don't know when or how Moses learned of his Hebrew heritage, we do know that he was aware of it by the time he was a young man. Exodus 2 says this, One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, interesting, and saw their forced labor. I wonder if it was the first time he had witnessed it, or the hundredth time. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinfolk. So Moses looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses was a murderer, and terrible at covering his tracks. For some of you, this is not news, but I know there are some who had no idea that Moses, Charleston Heston, had a rap sheet. Don't lose sight of that. The story gets juicier, of course, because for some unknown reason, Moses decides to head back out to the scene of his crime the next day. Dummy. Hadn't he watched any of the TV shows about how to catch a murderer? This was bad, bad planning. Anyway, he comes upon two Hebrews fighting one another, and he sticks his nose into their squabble. Bit of an unwise move, I think. Kid might have wanted to lay low for a little while. He had just killed someone. 
Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? Moses chided the one man. He answered Moses back, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? <clears throat> Moses panicked and thought, Surely this thing is known, you think? When news got to Pharaoh about the murder, and more importantly, I think, that people knew he had done it, he sought to kill Moses. This was bad press for the royals. It was already problematic that they had a Hebrew under their roof, but now he was causing drama and was becoming the subject of gossip. Despite growing up among them in the palace, there was no love for a Hebrew in Pharaoh's heart. Moses' scandal would not be allowed to tarnish their family's fame or the power of the Egyptian empire. The reputation of the institution of the empire had to be maintained at any cost. Moses had to be eliminated. So he fled. A fugitive of the law and an unwelcome face among his own people. Unloved and resented by the Hebrews and a criminal with a bounty on his head by the Egyptians. Don't lose sight of that. Scripture tells us that Moses then went out into the desert, perhaps thinking death would be more favorable than the situation in which he found himself, fair. He settled in the land of the Midianites, a people who had a rather checkered relationship with the Hebrews throughout the Old Testament. Outright animosity at some points, actually. Not only did Moses settle among the Midianites, but he became a shepherd, and he married one of the chieftain's daughters. And Zipporah bore two sons by Moses. So this is the Hebrew slave baby who escaped death, raised as royalty among the oppressive empire, a murderer who fled the law, now fully engaged in life as a Midianite, a nomadic outlying tribe whose relations with the people of God would sour even in Moses' lifetime. He'd be caught in the middle of a number of deadly skirmishes between the Midianites who took him in during his time of distress and the people from whom he was descended, but ultimately alienated. Don't lose sight of that. All of this history is set out before Moses ever turned aside to notice the bush that was burning but not consumed. That's where we were last Sunday. All of this history happened before Moses was commissioned and sent to Pharaoh to demand the release of the Hebrew people, the people who looked on him with disdain. What a mess. And then later when the people are freed and following Moses around in the desert, like it doesn't get much better. The drama continues. Moses gets caught between God and the people time after time. Moses goes up the mountain to collect, ultimately to collect the stone tablets containing the commandments, and when he comes back down, he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. You cannot leave these people alone for five minutes. The people complain bitterly about their living conditions and their thirst. Let's go back to Egypt. At least we got food there. Nostalgia is quite the drug. So Moses, tired of their whining, goes over God's head, whacks a stone to bring out water for them to drink. Now Moses is in God's bad books. 
And again and again and again, Moses and God. I did this a couple years ago where I talked about Moses and God being like an old married couple. Right? Kind of bickering about their wayward children and how best to handle them. But in the end, in the end, the people are delivered to the promised land. That's the part we remember. After 40 years of exhausting wandering and refining in the desert, along with the entire original generation of Israelites, minus a few, we'll deal with that another time, uh, the originals who were part of the great exodus from Egypt, Moses was not permitted to enter the promised land. On the surface, this comes across as a punishment for one of his attempts to go over God's head again. Sometimes I wonder if it's also a bit of a gift. After the life Moses lived, and the struggles of trying to lead thousands of people, many of whom had rather uncharitable or ignorant views of his life story, it might actually have been a blessing to get to bow out before the next big adventure. Moses, your servant is dead. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think about what that Hebrew man said to Moses when the latter tried to intervene in his fight with a kinsman. Way back, long before the burning bush, who made you a ruler and judge over us? The audacity of the likes of Moses, Moses, telling the Israelites how to live when he had so many flaws. So many skeletons in the closet. Murderer. An adopted Egyptian. Married to a Midianite. Who made you ruler and judge? Well, he didn't have an answer when that question was first posed to him. But we know now, and he knew eventually, that it was the Lord. And despite Moses' attempts to shirk the call, and despite his checkered past, and despite his ongoing foibles as a leader, Moses continued to serve God and God's people. In the end of his life, Moses gave one last great speech to the people before they entered the promised land. And that's what, ca what is captured in the book of Deuteronomy. There he offers a summary of their history and God's salvation, and the roadmap for being the people of God. The greatest commandment, the ultimate call, he insists, are the words known even today, recited regularly by Jewish people and some Christians. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them even as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Thousands of years later, someone will ask Jesus, trying to trap him and trick him. What's the greatest commandment? 
knowing that there were literally hundreds of them. Jesus recites the Shema. Love God. He adds a second is like it, love others. And this is a daily practice. You don't complete it at any time. You come back to it again and again. So make sure you talk about it. Wrestle with it a lot. What does it mean to love God and to love others? Do this wrestling and this conversing in community. Do it with your family and your kids. Try and fail and then try again. That is Moses' legacy to his people. An imperfect leader who tried, failed, made mistakes, tried again. But he loved God fiercely. And he loved the people he led and served stubbornly. Leadership is hard. Especially when you are a mere human being. A work in progress. Sometimes I think we forget. Leaders are never perfect. Even if we put them on pedestals or in pulpits. Moses wasn't perfect. Neither was Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Not King Saul, or King David, or King Solomon. The prophets all had issues. Jesus was perfect, but they killed him anyway. A leader can't possibly live up to people's expectations or standards. You make mistakes, you try again, you learn, you grow. Just like everyone else. Please, Lord, said Moses, send someone else. People here have been asking me a lot how I'm doing. Because a lot of you could tell, maybe I just told all of you, that I was kind of burned out by the end of June. It's been a rough three to five years. So I took the summer off and did a lot of healing and a lot of resting. But then the end of August happened. Mike died. And all of September was very difficult and emotionally draining. Personally and here at the church. But it's October now. We made it. And I'm feeling just fine. I am so grateful. It's Thanksgiving. And so I wanted to end the sermon by sharing my gratitude for your love and your concern, for your imperfect leader. I'm so grateful for your tireless support and love and concern for me and my children. Because like Moses, I'm not perfect either. I can be forgetful. I um, forgot the announcements on the printer this morning. That's where I went during the opening hymn. I am forgetful sometimes and a bit flighty, I've been told. I plead the fifth. I am a woman, and I am three years separated from my husband. Two things that would render me unsuitable for leadership in the church in many places, and here not too long ago. I have two tattoos and a nose piercing. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. And yet, like Moses, I love God fiercely, 
and I love the people of God fiercely and stubbornly. And I am grateful to you for your love in return. Like Moses and the people of God in the desert, there are highs and lows. We've had highs and lows at Knox. I think we're on a high right now. I'm grateful that we're sticking it out together. Do you know what else it is? It's Thanksgiving, but I saw on a number of people on my social media feeds uh, reminding one another, probably their congregations, that October is Clergy Appreciation Month, which I think is great because September was a train wreck. I'm really happy to be in October now. Feels much, this clergy person is very appreciative that it's October. But there's going to be lots of uh, conversations and moments of appreciation in lots of churches uh, where congregations are saying thank you to their ministers and priests and pastors. Um, I want to flip it. I want to flip it. For Clergy Appreciation Month, I, this clergy person, wants to appreciate you. Like Moses, appreciating the people that he wrestled with and the God that he argued with and still coming together to love God and love one another. I'm grateful that I get to do that with you, week in and week out, whether I'm at the top of my game or barely crawling to the finish line on a Sunday. So thank you, this Thanksgiving. I'm grateful to you. One of the things um, that I brought out in Mike's funeral sermon was that he wanted his legacy to be the words from the praise when it's all been said and done. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for Christ? And it's left me thinking, what would be my legacy? If I were to pull a mic one Sunday and say, when I die, this is what you're supposed to say at my funeral. It would probably be the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And wrestle with it. Talk about it together. Work it out in your families and in your communities. It's going to be messy and beautiful. You're going to cry and you're going to laugh, but you can do it together. That's what the life of faith is. The very first sermon I ever preached in this church when I was preaching for the call, almost fresh out of seminary. Okay, I was just out of seminary. I think I walked off the stage and into the pulpit to preach. I preached this passage from Deuteronomy because I thought that's how I introduced myself to this congregation and that's how we decide if God is honoring this call. That's my legacy. That's how I want to be remembered. As a leader who loved God and loved people, who wasn't perfect, but was willing to wrestle together. And I'm grateful for that. To God be all the glory.